Well, I just want to take another minute, and uh, in case you're not aware, because I think there are some people who aren't aware of what's been happening down in Asbury this, this past week and a half, and I think it's important for us to recognize this and take a moment and pray about it. If you're not aware, uh, Asbury University, a Christian college down in Wilmore, Kentucky, has been experiencing something they're not calling a revival, but they're calling it an outpouring, a gathering. Revivals are, more, are extended and widespread, and so they're kind of cautious. They don't want to get ahead of what God God is doing, but they certainly want to recognize that God is doing something. About a week and a half ago, uh, about uh, they had one of their regular, ordinary chapel services that students at the college are required to attend. And then they dismissed the students, and uh, most of them left, but about 20 hung around. They felt like God was telling them to stay and continue to pray and continue to worship. And then the Spirit seemed to move around the campus and, and, and encourage others to come back to the chapel. And so they did. They started coming back to the chapel and, and gathering to pray with each other and sharing some testimonies and singing and that kind of thing. And, and more and more people came. Um, this past week, I understand there were maybe three or 4,000 people that came to this small uh, college in Wilmore um, because of what uh, is happening now. And for about a week or so, it was a 24-hour uh, everyday event. People did not leave the chapel, or other, some did, others came, but, but this worship time continued throughout that period. Uh, and it does continue, although I read this morning that the, the campus officials are trying to figure out how to, you know, do classes and that kind of thing, but, but also allow this movement of God to continue. So um, it's, I, that's a wonderful thing, and we need to celebrate wherever God is at work, uh, and he seems to be doing a special work there in, uh, in Kentucky right now. And it seems like uh, some young people are taking it back to their colleges and universities and, and also uh, creating these times of worship and just spending time letting God speak to them and, and tell them uh, what he wants them to do. So I just wanted to make sure you're aware of that. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, and I think we should take a moment to pray about it. Can we do that? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for what's happening there in Kentucky, and we pray that it will spark more movements like that in, in lots of places in our country, and right here too, Lord, in Batavia, and right here at Northgate. We pray for, um, for a fresh coming of your Holy Spirit uh, upon us, and we pray that you will help us to be ready for that. We pray that you'll open us up to what you want to see happen, and that we will be ready to move in response. Um, we pray over the leaders and the students, especially at Asbury, who are trying to figure out this and, and know what to do and the next steps, and we just ask that you give them wisdom. But please do not stop sending your spirit to us, Lord. We need your spirit so badly, and I felt your spirit so strongly as we were worshiping here this morning, and we praise you and thank you for it. Continue to do that, Lord, and we will give you the praise and the glory for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are starting a new series today, and we're calling it Red Letters because in a lot of Bibles, the words of Jesus, wherever you find them, in the Gospels, a couple other books of the New Testament, you will see uh, they're in red uh, to kind of make them pop, make them stand out. So we always try to go through a Gospel this time of year, and, uh, and this year we decided we will go through the Gospel of John, focusing on some of the things that Jesus has said, the red letters in John. Uh, so that's what we're 
going to do. We're going to get there in just a minute. Uh, the words that uh, we're going to focus on today come from a meeting that Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. We're going to look at his story in a couple of minutes. But the words are these, you must be born again which uh, depending on your background and, and some experiences you may have had, those words might be very comfortable to you and very encouraging, or they might be like, ooh, is that kind of a strange thing that has to happen to people? Well, we're gonna talk about that, so uh, just hang on and we'll get into all of that. But Jesus is very clear that if we want to see the kingdom of God, we must be born again. He says it twice to Nicodemus, as I said, we'll look at that. My main point today is this, God seeks to radically transform us, not just tinker with a few things. God doesn't just, you know, it's, it's not, my problem is not that I have a little bit of problem with patience, and so God, if you could just make me a more patient person, then I'll be just fine and everything will be great. That's not the problem. The problem isn't that I might get irritated sometimes, and, and I just need you to help me not get quite so irritated quite so quickly, God, and then I'll be fine. That's not the issue. The issue is that we need a complete transformation of our, our hearts, our minds, our spirits. We need everything to be made new if we're going to see the kingdom of God and experience all the blessings of God. And this is the message that Jesus has for Nicodemus. I want to get into this, though, uh, by taking a look at a few verses in Ephesians. Uh, as we, This, I think, will really just kind of set the, the, uh, the tone or maybe the, uh, help us get some context for what Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus. It's Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read uh, the first few verses. Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And that's, that's really the key thing here I want to bring out. Before our relationship with Jesus, where we are cleansed of our sin, the Bible calls us dead. Okay? Not sick, you know, not, not a little troubled or messed up. Dead. Yes, it's a stark word, right? But it's, it's meant to alert us to our condition. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, condemnation, and hell. So this is what Paul says, you know, this is where all of us are at one time in life. We are all dead, spiritually dead, and we are deserving of God's wrath, and we are deserving of hell. But he goes on, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You see, we were spiritually dead, unable to do anything for ourselves in that condition. But because of his great love and mercy, God made us alive. And that's what being born again is all about. All right? So let's get into this a little bit. Let's, uh, let's read about this encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. It's in John chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not under and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So the first thing I notice about Nicodemus is that this, is, this seems to be a humble man, right? We, we learn that he is a teacher, and we're going to learn a little bit more about him in a second. But we learn that he is a teacher. Jesus calls him uh, Israel's teacher. And yet he has come to Jesus. And we'll talk about why in just a second. But let's, let's do that under this heading. Nicodemus the teacher becomes Nicodemus the student. Nicodemus, is, his name comes uh, in part from the Greek word for goddess of victory, Nike. Um, you might be wearing Nike shoes this morning. That, that's now you know where that comes from. He's a Pharisee. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that there were maybe around 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at this time, pop out of a population of maybe 600,000. So it's a very select group of people. The Pharisees are a very select group of people, very knowledgeable about the scriptures. Uh, they had to memorize the Torah. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Some of us struggle to even read through those five books. The, the Pharisees had to memorize them. They knew their scriptures. They were conscientious of about worship, about prayer. They fasted twice a week. They tithed. In short, they were great church people. They're the kind of people that a church would love to have. They're there in worship. They tithe. They, they read the Bible. They're wonderful people to have in worship. They were also very concerned about keeping God's laws. And they called out others who failed to do so. They had laws about the laws to help them keep the law. They're called fence laws. So, so for example, uh, the law about keeping the Sabbath holy. The Pharisees would add laws to that in order to help people keep the Sabbath holy. For example, uh, you could not spit on the ground and wipe the spit with your foot on the Sabbath because that would be like plowing the dirt. Okay, so no spitting, and, and you could step over it, but you couldn't step on it, okay? Um, a woman was not to look in a mirror on the Sabbath because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. I don't know why women are particularly called out on that. I don't like gray hair all that much either. Well, I'm getting used to it. Anyway, um, you, uh, you were forbidden from brushing your teeth with herbs to cure discomfort. If you had a toothache, couldn't brush your teeth with herbs. But you could brush your teeth if you had bad breath. 
which is very interesting to me. I'd, I'd love to go into that. Anyway, they had all this concern for keeping the laws because they wanted to be holy people. The problem was that they came to rely on keeping those laws as their uh, means of relationship with God. What was important was keeping the law versus what was inside the heart that propelled them to keep the law. And this is what Jesus was always calling out with them. You know, he says, yeah, on the outside you look great, but on the inside you're dead. You're dead. Your heart is not with God. You're just keeping laws, right? This is the problem. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the ruling council. He was someone in, high, in, the, in the highest orders of the Pharisees. He was in the Sanhedrin. Only 70 people on, and the high priests were part of the Sanhedrin, the court uh, among the Israelites. So here's the thing I want to take from all of that. Nicodemus was smart. He was successful. He was honored. He was wealthy. He had it all. He was, he was a success. But in his heart, I believe that Nicodemus recognized that something was missing. He, he had all of this, but there was an emptiness in here. And I believe that when Nicodemus heard Jesus teaching and he saw the things that Jesus was doing, he knew, I have to talk to this man, even though it's, it could definitely put me in jeopardy with the other Pharisees, I have to talk to this man because he has got something I need and it's missing for me. So he goes to Jesus and he calls him, Rabbi, and he even recognizes that Jesus, his uh, teachings are inspired. And Jesus, after Nicodemus greets him, uh, Jesus responds in kind of this odd way because he doesn't respond like you would think. He actually responds to what is going on inside the heart of Nicodemus. This, this question about how can I, how can I know that I'm part of God's kingdom? I do all of this. I attend church, I read my Bible, I pray, I tithe, I do all of that, but I just don't feel in here like I have the assurance that I really am part of God's kingdom. And this is what Jesus responds to, and he, and he says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus responds basically saying, I don't get what you mean. How could I get reborn? And Jesus says, you're right, you can't. You can't, but you must be. If you want to be part of God's family, you have to be born of water and the Spirit. A lot of writing about what Jesus means by water and the Spirit. Some people think water means baptism. I don't think so, because uh, in the Bible, it's always, you know, salvation, belief comes before baptism. So baptism is a response to people being saved. I don't think that that's what Jesus means here. Uh, he could mean natural birth. He does say a little bit after this, flesh gives birth to flesh. So he could just be talking about you have to be born physically, but you also have to be born spiritually. That makes sense. But I think another thought, and the scholars uh, have written about this, is that Jesus is taking Nicodemus back to a book that Nicodemus would have known really well, and that's the prophecy of Ezekiel, the writings of the prophet Ezekiel. Listen to what Ezekiel said in chapter 36. I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. 
I can't believe that that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying to Nicodemus, you remember what Ezekiel said about you needing to be cleansed of your sins, right? This sprinkling of water, you need to be cleansed, and, and then you will receive a new spirit and a new heart. I think that's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus here. You have to repent of your sins, Nicodemus. You have to come to God and ask to be cleansed, and God will give you a new spirit and a new heart. Jesus compares this work of God to the wind. He says, you can't see the wind, right? We don't see the wind. What we see is the effects of the wind, right? We see the limbs that are down or things blowing in the wind, but we don't see the wind itself. And he says, the spirit of God is like that. It's blowing all over the place. And you can't see the spirit, but you definitely can see what the spirit does. You can see the work of the spirit. And part of the work of the spirit is to help us become born again. That, that word again, born again, anothen in the Greek, it has three different meanings. It means again, okay, like one more time. Above, it means above, so this comes from above. And it means anew, you're made new. When God from above does a work again in our hearts, we are made new. And this is the experience of being born again. All Christians are born again. All Christians are born again. If we're not born again, we're not really in Christ. This is the work of God in us through faith in Christ. Now, you may not be able to put a date on when that happened for you. A lot of people can, right? They, they think about it, and, they, and, and I've seen people struggle with this. I, I can't give you the date, you know? And other people kind of pressure, well, you have to know the date. No, you don't. You just have to know that something's changed in your life and Jesus is the reason, right? I can get close to, I can't give you the date when I was born again, I can get close. It was in October of 1984. And I've shared my testimony here before and I don't have time to do it today, but I know that in October 1984, God spoke to me very strongly and I responded to his speaking to me and my life began to be different from that point forward. You see, you don't need a date. What you need to know is there's a difference. Your life has changed. There's something different about you, different towards God and different towards the things of God. You may not be, uh, you know, you may not speak in tongues when you're born again. Some people do. You may not. You may not have visions, okay? But you know that something is different. You may not raise your hands in worship or shout hallelujah, but you begin to understand why people do, okay? The world begins to look different to you. You begin to recognize the, the sin in the world and the, and the corruption of the world due to sinfulness. You, you recognize more of the sin in your own heart, right? You become more and more aware of that, and you grieve over it. You're not ashamed to call Jesus Jesus. You're not ashamed if somebody says, hey, do you, you know anything about this Christian thing? Yeah, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. See, when you're born again, you're not ashamed to say that. You're not ashamed to let people know you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. You want to know God more. You want to read the Bible. You want to be in worship. You want to live without sin. And when you do sin, you're convicted of it. In AA, in the 12-step programs, AA, they'll say um, you know, to a newcomer, sometimes they'll say, uh, you, you know, you may not stop drinking, but we will ruin your drinking for you, right? In other words, by attending these meetings, your drinking's not going to be as much fun as it was before. When you're born again, God ruins sin for you, right? It's like, yeah, okay, I sin, but I don't enjoy it anymore. I don't like it. I don't want to be there any longer. 
This is the experience of being born again. You may not see how it happens, but God does this through his spirit, and you see the results and the effects of it. One person described it this way. I can't explain it, but I know I hate the sin I once loved and love the God I once ignored. I'm no longer chasing the things of the world. I'm in high pursuit of Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Well, Jesus explains all of this to Nicodemus, that this is the experience that, that he needs to have to see the kingdom of God. And, and he reminds him of these things, family heritage, worldly success, theological knowledge, and good behavior will not get us into God's kingdom. We need to be made new creations through faith in Christ. Again, we don't need a little tinkering. We need transformation. We need a complete change of heart and spirit and mind. And Jesus helps Nicodemus to understand a little bit about how that's happening, but taking him to this really odd story from Numbers chapter 21. Back in Numbers, we read about the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, and they're getting upset with God. They're angry with God. They don't like the way things are going. And so they start grumbling and complaining to God, and specifically to Moses, who is representing God to them. And God has had enough. You know, sometimes God says enough. And he sends these venomous snakes among the Israelites, and people are getting bitten, and they're dying. And it brings them to a place of repentance. Brings them to a place where they, they say, Lord, we, we have been so wrong to complain against you. And they go to Moses and they beg him, please intercede for us. And God in his mercy says, I will stop this. He says, Moses, I want you to make a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. And whenever the people look up on that pole, after they've been bitten by one of these poisonous snakes, if they look on that snake on the pole, they will live and will not die. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Three times in the book of John, Jesus talks about being lifted up, and each time he's referring to the cross, being lifted up on the cross. He's telling Nicodemus what's going to happen to him, and he's saying, everyone who looks to me on that cross will live. Now, I'm sure there were Israelites who, who, you know, when Moses said, we're going to make a bronze snake, we're going to put up on a pole, and if you get bitten by a snake, you'll be fine. Just look, at the, just look up here at the bronze snake. I'm sure there were people who said, what? That makes no sense. I mean, isn't somebody going to come running along and suck the venom out of my ankle, you know? Isn't that the way that they do it in the Westerns? Right? No. You're going to look on this bronze snake, and you will live. They didn't understand it, maybe. They didn't get it. It seemed odd. But here's the point. God said, do it. Did they have enough trust and faith in God's word to do what he said? If they did, they'd be healed. They would live. And if they didn't, they would die. And it's the same with the cross. You may not be able to explain all the theories of the atonement, why Jesus needed to go to a cross and what that actually did for us. You don't have to understand it all. What you have to know is God said, if you look to what Jesus has done for you on that cross and you put your trust and faith in him and in that, you will live and you will be born again. What happened to Nicodemus? When I read the Bible, I can't help but wonder about these things. You know, like, what happened to Nicodemus right after this conversation? 
Well, we don't know for sure, but we get a little bit of a clue. In chapter 7 of John, uh, there's, a, there's a meeting of this uh, ruling council of the, of the Jewish, of the, of the um, Pharisees, and they want to arrest Jesus, and, and they're, they're having trouble getting that done. And, and Nicodemus stands up in the midst of this group courageously and says, listen, do, do we try people before we've heard what they have to say? Shouldn't we at least listen to what Jesus has to say before we condemn him? It took a lot of guts to do that. It took a lot of courage for him to do that. A little bit later, well, a little bit later, uh, John chapter 19, after Jesus dies on the cross, Joseph of Arimathea comes and gets the body of Jesus. Nicodemus comes with him with 75 pounds of spices to anoint the body of Jesus, and then they bury that. That says something to me about the devotion that Nicodemus felt towards Christ. So I have real hope that Nicodemus is in heaven. I have real hope that he heard what Jesus said here and that he, he looked at Jesus as his Savior and his Lord. And he is in heaven today. But the important question is, what are we going to do with it? Right? What are you going to do with it? Right? Are you born again? If you don't think that you are, are you hearing God call you to a place of repentance, to acknowledge your sinfulness, and to look to him and nothing else, look to him for salvation? That's the message that we need to take away from this. If you are born again, if you know that you've given your life to Christ and you've experienced that, you know, what I talked about here in terms of the effects of the Spirit on your life, wonderful. You know, continue to ask God to pour His Spirit into your heart and to make you receptive and, and able to respond to His Spirit. But if you don't think that you are, can I encourage you to talk to somebody? Can I encourage you to, to pray and ask God to meet you? To forgive your sins? to give you his spirit, to make your life new. Let me close with a story just to kind of bring this home. Charles Spurgeon was a, was a great preacher in the 1800s, phenomenal preacher, anointed man. Uh, but at 15, he was struggling. And at 15, he was searching to know God. And, and one particular Sunday, he wanted to get down to the church that he normally goes to. Um, but there was a terrific snowstorm, and he couldn't get down there. So he got as far as this small Methodist chapel, and he went inside there uh, to be part of the service. There were about 12 or 15 people in the chapel at the time. The regular minister was unable to get there. So a guy from the congregation, he calls him a poor man, a shoemaker or tailor or something, uh, got up to, to preach the word. And he took his text from Isaiah 45, 22, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And Spurgeon says this, this preacher, who was not a gifted preacher and he wasn't an experienced preacher and he wasn't a well-educated man, he just began to talk about this verse, Look to me and be saved. He said, Look, doesn't take much effort. You don't have to lift a finger or a foot. You don't need a college education. You might be the biggest of fools. You don't need any money. Anybody can do it, even a child. Look. God says. Look to me, not yourself. Look to me, Jesus, sweating blood. Look to me, Jesus, hanging on a cross. Look to me, dead and buried. Look to me, I rise again. Look to me, I ascend to the Father's right hand. Look to me. Look to me. 
And Spurgeon says after about 10 minutes, the man had said everything he could think of to say, and he stopped, except he then looked out at this small congregation, and he looked straight at Spurgeon and said, Robin, I'm going to pick on you. <laughs> he said, young, young man, you look miserable. <laughs> and she doesn't, really. And you're going to stay miserable. You're going to stay miserable until you look to Jesus. And then he shouted, young man, look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon says, there and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. Do you get it? Do you, do you understand what Spurgeon experienced in that moment? You know? that moment of recognizing that, that this God of love and justice and holiness and mercy cares about me, me, and saves me by the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And my life is changed, not tinkered with, transformed. If you don't get that, the most important thing you can do is seek it. How do you seek it? Put yourself in a place where God can speak to you. Continue to come to worship services, reading the Bible, praying, asking God to open your mind, open your heart. God wants you in his kingdom. And he is calling out to each of us to be a part of it. We need to respond. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that um, you'll continue to send your Holy Spirit upon us. Those of us who have, have given our lives to Jesus and those of us who are still on that road and still, um, still approaching that. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace. And we pray that you will pour that out on us and on this place. Renew our hearts, renew our minds, renew our spirits. And help us to continually offer you the sacrifice of praise and worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you'd stand, everybody would stand, we'll have the, uh, the takeaway. By the way, if you want to know more about giving your life to Christ, or you want to talk about that experience of being born again, if you're not sure where you are with Jesus, if you just want prayer, come on down front after the service. And we'll be here to pray with you and to talk with you. Um, but thank you for being here together to worship. Thank you for being with us online. The takeaway is from 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. Hallelujah. And praise God, right? Uh, go in the blessings of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 